You're listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. I'm excited to to be uh, in the passage we are today because it takes us uh, to what Christmas is all about. Um, it's, it's not the same passage, but it's one of my um, favorite moments uh, in TV uh, production when Linus stands up at the end of A Charlie Brown's Christmas and reads from the Gospel of Luke about the birth of Christ. Um, and <clears throat> uh, as, as he stands up, it's one of those things that kind of catches you off guard as you're watching you know, something on now our streaming app uh, or back in the day on NBC or CBS or whatever it used to run on there at Christmas. And you just hear uh, the clarity of what Christmas is about as he reads from the Gospel of Luke and talks about the birth of Christ and how unto us a child is born in the city of David, uh, a king who is Savior, whose name shall be called Jesus. Uh, it gets to, to the heart of Christmas. Uh, and it's interesting to me, I, was, um, uh, I saw this week a, a tweet that somebody put out which led me to look up the story behind it. Uh, and it's the story behind how a Charlie Brown's Christmas came to be. Um, and uh, Charles Schultz and, uh, and his uh, collaborators, Mendelssohn and Melendez, as they worked together to put uh, Charlie Brown's Christmas together, the uh, Peanuts had already kind of had, you know, some popularity and success, and it was somewhat of a, a risky adventure uh, to put out a Charlie Brown's uh, Christmas special, uh, and, and it kind of came together in just a month's time, and they got together, and they were doing a collaborative kind of effort, and I'm sure a lot of movies are like this, honestly. Um, you know, they had like an hour before the people came that they had to pitch it to. They threw it all together and bam, they had a story. Um, and <clears throat> even up to like uh, just prior to when it actually aired, uh, things weren't all fully together for the, the show. Um, and it was being sponsored by Coca-Cola, uh, who was one of the main funders for it. And they were skeptical that it was going to actually be a hit. Um, and so they said, most likely this is your one shot. So don't, you know, mess it up. Um, but as it all came together, uh, it ended up being like the most watched show at the time. Um, and of course, now has been running for however long uh, since, uh, since then in the, in the early 60s when it all came, uh, came to fruition. But uh, Charles Schultz uh, insisted uh, in the show uh, that, that it really be about something. He wanted, he wanted the, the special to really be about something, not just any, uh, any kind of Christmas theme. And uh, in fact, he said, I want it to be about the true meaning of Christmas. If not, why, why do it? Um, and uh, as they were talking uh, amongst one another, Mendelssohn and Melendez uh, really pressed Schultz about including the biblical text in the, in the special uh, because they thought it kind of would come across too preachy and not be uh, very fitting to their audience, um, and and so uh, as they were uh, as they were kind of going back and forth about this, Mendelssohn recalls that Schultz, the um, the main author of it all, he says, "If we don't do it, who will? If we don't include it, who will?" And uh, at the time, the corporate sponsors, as I mentioned, were Coca Cola and some others. They didn't actually uh, balk at the idea. They didn't push back and say that they didn't want it included. Uh, and so uh, it ended up running and ended up being, um, you know, the hit that it was, and and still running today. And uh, and as the author of this article. 
quotes. He said, Linus standing up and reading from the book of Luke about the meaning of the season became the most magical two minutes in all of TV animation. Um, Whether that stood the test of time and others would say there are more magical two minutes of animated TV since then, uh, I'll let somebody else argue about that. But it is striking, the the fun and kind of uh, you know, uh, cartoonish nature of a Charlie Brown's Christmas gets real serious there at the end as Linus stands up and reads uh, about the birth narrative and says, this is what Christmas is all about. Um, and as we come to, to Matthew 1, uh, 18 through 25, I'm not Linus, um, this isn't Luke 2, um, but it's the passage that tells us what Christmas is all about. So look at Matthew 1, uh, 18 through 25 uh, with me if you would. It says that the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So here in this passage, uh, I want us to see three things uh, about the birth of Jesus. Uh, The first uh, shows up in in the first three verses that in Jesus' birth, God shows his sovereignty over all things. We see God's sovereignty over all things. We, in many ways, as you read the beginning of verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, uh, you can't help but read that and think about all that's come before, right? God has orchestrated 42 generations uh, dating back to Abraham. And if you read the Gospel of Luke, dating back to Adam from the promise of Genesis 3.15 that from the offspring of Eve would come one who would crush the head of the, of the serpent. God has been orchestrating this plan to bring about from, um, from Mary, who's married to Joseph, who's from the line of David, the Savior, who is Jesus. All of this has taken place to to bring this about. And yet, here in the midst of God sovereignly bringing about the birth of Jesus, we see a problem. You see, Mary is betrothed to Joseph. And betrothal in the ancient times, uh, during the New Testament times, betrothal on one hand is like engagement. They're promised to be married. But it's more of a a contractual promise that can only be broken by, in, in essence, divorce. Uh, and so it's, it's not full marriage, but it's, it's more than what our current engagement is, and yet not quite uh, the official uh, covenant of marriage yet, and it can only be bro- broken by divorce. And so it's a, it's a significant uh, experience that one takes when uh, a husband and a wife are betrothed, and it's usually about a year-long period. Uh, and often the husband is getting a place prepared and ready to, uh, to, to come and take his wife to, be, um, uh, to, to, to create a new family. And this process that takes place over this period of time is known as betrothal. And so that's the situation that Joseph and Mary are in. They're betrothed to one another. But it says that she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. 
It doesn't indicate that this is something that was covered up, but that it came to be known that she was with child. And we know from the text that she was with child in a miraculous way, that it was from the Holy Spirit. This is the incarnation, divine intervention, uh, that God has come into this world through the womb of Mary by a miraculous work. Um, And yet, in her world, she's a betrothed woman that's pregnant. And that puts her and Joseph in an interesting situation. Either her and Joseph uh, will be seen Uh, as being inappropriate in their betrothal before marriage, having uh, already consummated their marriage and having a child, or as the indication, uh, as the text indicates, Mary is in a position where it seems as if she has been unfaithful to Joseph and now is with child, and the situation would be for Joseph to publicly divorce her and to shame her for her unfaithfulness, for her, in essence, her adultery, and, and honestly, from the biblical text, and we, we think about how important covenant faithfulness is in marriage, adultery in the Old Testament was uh, punishable by stoning, though that wasn't often practiced at this time. It was mostly just a public shaming and, uh, and, and kind of acknowledgement that took place in the community. Um, what, what's taking place here is a, is a terrible problem for Joseph, whose reputation is on the line, for Mary, whose reputation is on the line, whose, whose perhaps dignity and safety in the community is on the line. All of this is taking place, and, and we see that Joseph responds. We, we see a few things about Joseph. Um, it's been said that Joseph is the forgotten character in the, in the Christmas narrative. Uh, you know, even the shepherds get more play than Joseph. Um, and so, uh, like our, our native Aretha Franklin would say, like, give the man a little bit of R-E-S-P-E-C-T, right? Like, give him some respect for what he did. Because he was a man of character. It says that he was a just man. Uh, he, he, wanted to, uh, he wanted to do what was right, and yet he was a compassionate man. He was unwilling to put her to shame. So he resolved to divorce her quietly in such a way that it wouldn't draw attention to her and put her in a vulnerable position uh, and would, would yet do the just thing in which from at this moment, before he has this vision from uh, this angel that comes from the Lord, as far as he knows, his betrothed wife has been unfaithful. And so we see in this problem how all of this is taking place and yet God has a plan. And what the world looks at as a terrible problem, God has a plan. And this is where we see his sovereignty. In verse 20, it says that as Joseph was thinking about these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David. Notice the emphasis on that as we've been talking about throughout Matthew 1, that Jesus is from the line of David. Joseph, who isn't his earthly father, but who will be his legal father, adopts Jesus by naming him, takes Jesus to be his son, and and ultimately makes him legally from the line of David. Uh, It says, Joseph, the son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived her is from the Holy Spirit. And then he says, she'll bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. See, God's plan in all of this is exactly what we said earlier. It's to bring about the salvation that he promised long ago. All the, all the waiting, all the anticipation was coming uh, to fruition in this way. And isn't that how God works sometimes? He's working in his way, and his way sometimes seems like a problem to us. 
his timing, the people that he uses, the way that he does it seems like a problem to us. Why would he do it this way? Why would it, why would it happen in this way? And yet all of this was to bring about the fulfillment of the scriptures, that it was just like God said that he would bring about from the line of David. Why is it that, uh, that we have this genealogy of Joseph and yet Joseph isn't the earthly father of Jesus, that Joseph is married to Mary, who then gives birth to Jesus. The whole genealogy is so-and-so begot so-and-so. They were the father of so-and-so and the father of so-and-so. And then Jesus, it wasn't Joseph that's his father. It was Mary who is his mother. Because God has miraculously worked to bring Jesus into this world free from original sin as it comes into this world, as sinful uh, man and woman are united in marriage and bring children into this world, beautiful as they may be, sinners still, uh, they come into the world and, uh, and yet Jesus miraculously is brought into the world separate from that and yet in such a way that he is, according to the scriptures, from the line of David. You see, in the ancient times for a father to take a son and give him a name was the essence of adopting them. And that's what Joseph does here. It's him taking Jesus as his son. And you notice the angel says, you shall name him. And, and at the end in verse 25, it says, and Joseph called his name Jesus. We see not only, as I mentioned earlier, the, the character and the compassion of Joseph, but ultimately the courage in the end to listen to God. And do what he said, to follow God's plan, even when his circumstances didn't look promising. He trusted God, took Mary as his wife, and named his son that was born Jesus, as God had said. And God fulfilled his promises, and Jesus, the Son of God, fully man, fully God, entered into the world in the, in the place of Bethlehem, the city of David, according to the line of David, and fulfillment of the scriptures, this is what God has done. That's, that's the, the plan that God is working out that Mary and Joseph didn't see. If you look in Luke 1, Matthew is talking to us from Joseph's perspective. Luke, if you look in Luke 1 and 2, it's talking to us from Mary's perspective. Both Luke and Joseph, uh, Mary and, and Joseph, stood back as they heard all that what God was doing, and they marveled at these things. They trusted God, and they treasured in their hearts, it says Mary did, what God was doing. It wasn't what they thought. It wasn't what they planned. When Joseph said, Mary, will you, will you be my wife? Will you be betrothed to me in a year's time? I'm going to come again for you. It wasn't what they had planned. It, nor was it what they had planned that Quirinius, who was the governor at this time, would say, hey, everybody needs to go to their hometown to be measured, to be counted for my census. So here we have Joseph, who's in Nazareth, who has to get Mary, who's with child, and put her on a donkey and go a great distance to Bethlehem to be counted for this Roman emperor's census. These things weren't in the play, playbook, and yet this was God's plan. And, and so here as we see that God's sovereignty on display, I just step back from this and ask us for a moment. In the extraordinary circumstances of Mary and Joseph's life, we can, we can miss out on this ordinary application of the Christmas narrative. And the question is, how do you respond when God interrupts your life? How do you respond when God interrupts your day? When God interrupts the plan that you have? When things aren't working out accordingly? Do we ignore him? Press in, press on with what we're doing? Or do we trust him? Do we run from him? Or do we rest in him? 
Do we, do we seek his wisdom when we don't understand what's happening? Or do we trust our own? Do we entrust ourselves to him saying, God, I don't know what to do, but I give myself to you. Or do we trust in ourselves? See, when we are faced with the unexpected and the difficult, we can trust that God's plan is still at work. Because in Jesus' birth, we see God's sovereignty uh, over all things. And all of those things include our life, that God is at work in these details, working out his plan. Not only do we see God's sovereignty, but we also see in Jesus' birth that God extends salvation to all who receive him as Savior. He extends salvation to all who receive him as Savior. This is what it's all about. That a son will be born and his name will be called Jesus all of this uh, is in verse 20, 21, uh, because he will save his people from their sins. And this is according to the scriptures that there had to be this miraculous one born, God with us in order to save us from our sins. Jesus's birth was about bringing salvation to all people who would trust in him. <clears throat> this week I had the situation, I'm still not 100% sure what, what it is, but I started to have some sound in my ear uh, on Monday night. And it's happened a few other times this week, and I have to go see a, um, uh, a ear, nose, and throat specialist. But uh, when it happened on Monday night, it was really unnerving to me. Um, and, and of course, when you look things up online, I, I've got a doctor in the room that uh, was going to laugh at this, but if, you can diagnose yourself with all kinds of things uh, when you look things up online, right? Um, you know, and sometimes, uh, I don't know what it is about the human heart, we default to the worst thing, you know? Um, and so I've got ringing in my ear, therefore there's, you know, some terrible cancer that's at play in all of this. Or I've got Meniere's disease, I've, I, whatever it is, I've got the worst possible case of something that I have definitively diagnosed myself with. Um, on Wednesday, I saw a regular doctor who, you know, told me that most likely I just needed to take some Flonase and I would be okay. Um, and so you're like, okay, I don't, maybe I don't have Meniere's disease. Uh, but the, the point is, it's important to get a proper diagnosis, right? It's important to understand when you're not feeling well to have a proper diagnosis of what's going on. Well, as we think about what we need and we think about what God provided in Jesus's birth, he tells us here exactly what we need by means of what he provided. You see, if we, if we would have needed education, God would have provided a teacher, right? If, if we would have, have needed some, some other thing, God would have provided uh, the particular means for it. But God's provision meets our particular need. And what did God provide in sending Jesus? A Savior. Jesus will come, whose name is God's, God is salvation, a common name during this time. But this Jesus is the one who will save his people from their sins. The diagnosis was they needed a savior from their sin. Not something else. Not freedom from Rome. That's what many people in Israel were expecting. Not a new temple. Even though that one was built, it wasn't the glory of the one that Solomon built. They didn't need a new king. Just like David and, and the years of old, they needed a savior from their sins. And, and we do the same thing. We think our problem is other people, so we try to change our relationships. We think our problem is money, 
So we try to get a new job or we give ourselves recklessly to our current one. We, we think our problem is our marriage, so we go and look for love in the wrong places. We think our problem <clears throat> uh, is, is often identified in some external thing that if we can just fix and change it and move things around, maybe there's something about us. If we can internally adjust and fix it, then everything will be made right. And there may be things that need to be fixed, right? There may be people in your life that, in relationships that may, may need to be addressed. You may need to make some different financial decisions. You may need to do some different things to address issues in your marriage or in your friendships. Or you may need to do uh, some things to address some, some areas that you see in your life. But underneath all of those things, there's a more fundamental problem that we all have and that Christmas addresses and that fundamental problem is sin. And it's why Jesus came. We can go through life trying to make ourselves better, trying to make our environment better, trying to make things more peaceful, fix all the problems. But if the problem underneath them all isn't addressed, we're still in the worst possible place apart from God. It says that Jesus came into the world to save his people from their sins. The diagnosis is this. I am a sinner. I need a savior. Jesus is the remedy. I am a sinner. I need a savior. Jesus is the remedy. He was born miraculously. He died sacrificially. He rose victoriously so that anyone who would put their trust in him wouldn't be turned away, but would be saved, changed now and secure for eternity. That's the offer of salvation that comes at Christmas. Salvation comes by divine intervention. God steps in miraculously through the birth of Jesus, through the Virgin Mary, in a, in a divine and provisional way. God has provided what we need, what we couldn't do on our own. We couldn't save ourselves. We couldn't fix our sin. He provided the sacrifice that was once and for all. Just like God had promised in Isaiah 7, 14, though there was a near-term fulfillment when God provided a child uh, during the time uh, of Isaiah to King Asa, that there was a time in the future when God was going to provide a child that would be born of a virgin who would truly be God with us. So that's exactly what God did in the sending of Jesus. And all of this fulfilling of scripture that we've seen through the genealogy and here in Isaiah 7, 14, as it quotes in verse 20, 23, all of this goes to show us that Jesus really is the promised savior. Like Matthew isn't like glossing over the history and saying, yeah, 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 Jesus is the promised one. He's given you the receipts, right? He's saying, look for yourself. Jesus is the one. And because God has done this, you can really trust him. Look, if I, if I told you that I uh, was going to do something for you and repeatedly failed to do it, you might lack some trust in me. Or if you were that person to another one, you may have some trust issues. But if you keep your word repeatedly, then you're a trustworthy person. Well, what has God done? He's kept his word repeatedly. Generation after generation after generation. He's true to his word. We can trust him. And I, I often say, if you've yet to put your trust in Christ, you can. 
You can do it today. And, and I just do this often at the end of the service, sometimes in the middle of the service, to, to make it plain and to make it clear. God's inviting you to himself. It's a gift that's given. But just like on Christmas Day, if somebody had an amazing gift that they wanted to give you and the, the package was nice and the bow was, was looking good and everything was just right, it had your name on it. And they sat it in your lap, but you did nothing with it. You wouldn't enjoy the gift. The gift of salvation is to be received to all who receive him. John 1 says he gives them the right to be called sons, daughters of God. And, and so just as a, um, as a simple uh, invitation that the gospel gives us, it says if you agree with the diagnosis that I am a sinner, I need a savior, Jesus is the remedy, then God invites you to trust him. And it looks like you practically putting in your own words to God, God, I know I'm a sinner. I trust that Jesus is my Savior. I don't want to live life my way anymore. I want to live life your way. Come into my life and change me. I'm yours. And and anyone who calls on him, God says he will not turn away. They will not be ashamed. So if that's yours, put those words into that prayer into your words and ask God today to be your Savior for that is why Jesus came. He came to save us from our sins. Jesus' birth shows us not only that God extends salvation to all who trust in him, but ultimately we see here at the end that God draws near to us. Matthew 1, we see that closing uh, point that's made that the son will be born whose name shall be Emmanuel, which means God with us. You see, I was thinking about this idea of God's presence and the theme of God's presence. Uh, and it really takes us all the way back uh, to, the, to the garden, to the Garden of Eden. First, we see God's presence in the Garden of Eden as he walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. Then we saw they were banished from the garden and, and there was a, a block that was put up to the entry of coming back into God's presence as sinners. But then in God's redemption, as he brought Israel out of Egypt and delivered them, he was there and present in the pillar of fire and cloud in the Exodus as he led them by day and by night to the promised land. And even as they wandered, because of their disobedience to God, God's presence was there with them in the tabernacle as they were able to go into the Holy of Holies through the high priest to make sacrifice for their sins so that they could be with the Holy God and the Holy God could be with them. And then in God's due time, as Solomon became king, God's presence was there in the temple. There, in a a very visible and glorious and ornate way, God was with his people. And in the fullness of time, Jesus was born, who is Emmanuel, and God's presence was with us in Jesus. And there's a particular sense in which God's presence was there on earth at a particular time in the birth of Christ in a way that's never been before. But we see in Jesus' ascending, he promises to send the Holy Spirit and that God's presence is now with us as his people who trust in him by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, always with us, empowering, enabling us. And yet so often, I I often say that the indwelling uh, power of the Holy Spirit, there's a sense in which you, you feel it, you know the effects of it. It's like the wind, you don't see it, but you know the effects of it. God's leading and directing and guiding in your life. And yet we so often long for more of God, wanting more of his presence, wanting more certainty and and understanding of what he's doing and how he's working all things out. And the day will come where we will fully be in God's presence. His presence will be fully available to us in eternity.
H.B. Charles said of Jesus being Emmanuel. He says, Jesus is his name. Emmanuel is his title. Jesus is his mission. Emmanuel is his nature. Jesus is what he does. Emmanuel is who he is. Jesus is the transcendent one above all, God. And Jesus is the imminent one who is with us. Jesus of Nazareth is God with us. In Jesus' birth, we see that God draws near to us. And it's this idea of God's presence that struck me this week as I was studying that really is the bookends of the Gospel of Matthew. Here in Matthew one twenty one, we see they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then flip to the very end of Matthew. Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20. This is, these are our marching orders. This is what we're about as a Great Commission church. Jesus said on his ascension after his resurrection, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you. Always to the end of the age. Behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. <clears throat> I love um, being a dad for a lot of reasons, but one of the things I love most as my kids grow up, um, part of it's their development and their fear of being alone. Um, but, but there's also just a special sense of being a parent that the security your child derives from just being present with their parent. Um, a daughter loves to play in a room, but she wants to be near us. She doesn't want us to be on the main floor and her on the second floor. She wants us to stay on the second floor. Even if we're not in the same room, she just wants to know that she's near us. And the kids get on the couch. They just want to climb near you. Sometimes you're like, go sit over there, right? But, but that, that sweet moment when they, when they want to nuggle with you, they say, when they want to draw near to you, and there's this sense of comfort and security that comes with being in your presence. There's something that empowers a child about being with someone like a parent that like their parent that they're present with them. They'll they'll go on the scary ride if mom or dad is beside them. They'll do the scary thing if you're there holding their hand. It's a comfort and a security as well as an empowering presence. And just like that's true in a dim way of a parent, an earthly parent, how much more true that is of our God who came first in Jesus and now dwells in us by His Spirit. You could say it this way, in Jesus' incarnation, He is Emmanuel, God with us, at a specific point in time. But in Jesus' resurrection, Jesus is with us for all of time. What good news that is. He draws near in the incarnation to save us. He stays near by the Holy Spirit so that he might use us to make known the salvation he brings. That's what begins. God with us in the incarnation is what begins the gospel. God with us always in the Great Commission is what ends the gospel. Christmas brings us to the, to the beauty of God drawing near to us. And, and we're reminded in the resurrection that God is always with us. And that we have work to do as his people. And I really believe as a church, I've been reminded in multiple ways over these past few weeks that God is truly at work in our community. He's at work in the relationships that are active and present and even in our own church. 
He's using each of you in different ways. Connecting with people, meeting needs, having conversations about the gospel. There really are, do you really believe, I pray that you do, that there are people in our community who are hurting and need help? Do you really believe that there are people in our community that need Jesus and that God might just have put you near them as a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, a classmate, so that you might make him known? Maybe it's starting to make him known in the way that you serve them. Displaying the gospel and your love and your care for them. And maybe it also includes opening your mouth and declaring, sharing, maybe from your own testimony, maybe as best as you can, maybe getting out whatever it is that you can to say, my hope is in Christ. Christ is Savior. This is how the birth of Jesus came to be. This is what the birth of Jesus means for you and me. This is what Christmas is all about. Matthew 1, 18-25, as well as Luke 2, straight from Linus's mouth to us, it's about Jesus. He was born to die so that we might live. That's what Christmas is about. Let's pray.